an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. This is episode 73. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is a, a special sort of quick turnaround episode uh, about a Catholic philosopher and humanitarian, and you probably don't hear that sort of thing very often at Life After God. So a uh, special day for us. I'm going to be joined by, uh, by my guest, Gretchen Meter, in just a moment. But a little bit before we get into that, just a, a quick little housekeeping. Um, we're a little behind schedule right now on the podcast. I took a short vacation with my girlfriend, went up to Yosemite National Park where she had never been. But uh, Yosemite's been sort of a regular playground for me for many, many years holds a very special place in my heart. So we, we spent about four or five days up north uh, traveling around and checking out um, the giant sequoias in Sequoia National Park and some of the uh, favorite sites in Yosemite. So that was amazing, but it set me back a little bit on the schedule. Uh, but just a quick uh, overview of what's coming. Uh, I've recorded already an, uh, a conversation with Lloyd Evans, who is pretty well known, especially in the ex-Jehovah Witness community. Uh, he has a YouTube channel, a well, a well, relatively famous YouTube channel, and we talk at, at some length about the Jehovah's Witness movement and his uh, escape from that and how he's helped so many others leave that movement. I also have an episode coming up fairly quickly about grief, and it's a conversation with a therapist named Garrett and he was uh, a guest on my Secular Student Alliance podcast a little while ago. And our conversation is so moving, the things that he shared about the process of grieving uh, that he's learned through years of practice in hospice care primarily is so moving that uh, I'm going to share it with you and um, edit some other stuff onto it. So be looking out for that. Uh, as always, if you want to learn more about the Life After God podcast and community, you can visit our website, lifeaftergod.org. All of the links to our social media are there at lifeaftergod.org. Uh, you can join as a member on our uh, Patreon page, patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. By being a member, you'll be, you'll be a part of our Facebook community that is growing uh, each week with people who are not only supporters of the podcast, but also engaging in meaningful community conversations uh, there on, on the Facebook page, as well as special events that we have from time to time for our members. So check it out. Uh, reach out to me if you have any questions. You can always get a hold of me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. So now, back to the Catholic philosopher that I referred to earlier. Today, earlier today, May 7th, Jean Vanier died at the age of 90. And you might be saying, who's Jean Vanier? Well, he is or was uh, a Catholic philosopher, theologian, and humanitarian who in 1964 founded L'Arche Communities, or the, or the organization L'Arche, a worldwide network of communities for people with developmental disabilities and those who assist them. 
uh, a short excerpt uh, from the New York Times obituary today uh, reads as follows. Mr. Vanier was a teacher and moral leader who converted his desire to help people into a worldwide movement. The turning point in his life came in 1963 with his visit to an institution for people with intellectual disabilities. He was so moved by their pleas for help that he bought a house and invited two male residents to live with him. It was the beginning of L'Arche. He helped found a similar group, Faith and Light, a few years later. Today, L'Arche, rooted in the Roman Catholic Church, has 154 communities in 38 countries around the world. Faith and Light has 1,500 communities in 83 countries. Through both organizations, people with and without intellectual disabilities live together in a community where they can feel they belong. His work served as a model for several other organizations. And joining me today to talk about the legacy of Jean Vanier and his impact on her is Life After God member Gretchen Meter. Welcome, Gretchen. Hi, thanks for the invite. Yeah, my pleasure. And so, Gretchen, you're a clinical psychologist working in the state of Washington, is that right? Yes. She was uh, a guest on a special event that we co-hosted with Room to Thrive called The Dark Side of Forgiveness uh, some time ago, maybe about a, a year ago now. And just as the news was breaking about Vanier's death earlier today, I saw Gretchen post uh, the Washington Post story, that, and we had a brief conversation online about it and decided to quickly turn around this conversation for all of you. So Gretchen, we're, we've done next to zero pre-production for this. We've barely chatted about it. Um, so I guess just begin by telling me a little bit about your experience with L'Arche and what Jean Vanier and his work has meant to you. My exposure to Vanier and L'Arche happened uh, during a 10-year period uh, when I was Catholic. And I was really immersed in a lot of humanistic work in the Catholic Church, um, a lot of social justice work and and that movement. Um, there was a, a period in, during which I took a year-long social justice formation course called Just Faith, where we looked at um, you know, different social issues and, and ways to act around those in meaningful ways. And so learning about Vanier and L'Arche was a part of that. Um, in addition, the, the parish I was attending at the time in Spokane um, had a L'Arche community affiliated uh, with our church. And so there was a, a particular service on Sundays where all the L'Arche folks came it was always amazing to go to mass during that time because they they sat together and it was in the front and it was just this very kind and caring assortment of people of different levels of awareness, different levels of functioning, um, you know, everyone from the the people who needed the most help in the community to the caregivers and they they both were welcome in the parish and they welcomed others. And I saw the impact of the community in that it, I think it really fostered a sense of uh, acceptance and genuineness. And there were things you just couldn't uh, get around or be pretentious about in the presence of uh, these delightful folks with intellectual disabilities. Um, and, and watching church members interact with them and kind of roll with the punches. Uh, my mom reminded me of a, a detail I had forgotten this morning when I was um, uh, 
saying, you know, hey, remember that time, you know, you saw those folks, um, you know, this man who died today was the founder of the movement. And she reminded me of a man in the group, probably in his 50s at the time, uh, a man with downs and very cheerful, very affectionate. Um, But he also took on this solemn uh, duty, it it appeared as he saw it, of leading the congregation in, in song and worship. So anytime the you know choir director was uh directing the, the choir or or coordinating any aspect of music this man would face the congregation and he would direct us and you know other times some members would kind of um you know wander up onto the um you know the the stage area i forget the the proper term for it kind of wander around and inspect what was going on and, and see what was happening say when the priest was um, doing a particular aspect of the service. And the, I guess their genuine presence, um, their sort of curiosity and kindness and um, just willingness to, to be themselves mm. kind of forced everybody else to loosen up um, not worry about the little things like whether the format of the service was proper mm-hmm. and whether or not, you know, people were touching or not touching the, the items they should be. It, it, it really brought a different level of human encounter uh, to the service that, that I appreciated and, and just felt like, um, you know, raised it to a, a whole nother dimension. And it, it's a great example of something I tell people often when I talk about my time in Catholicism over the course of my journey, and, and that is that I've, I was introduced to humanism uh, within the Catholic Church. And so this, this practice of valuing people and serving people and being in communion with people just because they're people, um, not because we're trying to sell them on a particular theology or perspective, uh, but having this uh, assumption that that people have value and have something to offer um, was was inherent to that experience, and I I am grateful for and and carry that with me today. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that. I'm so glad you you brought that up because it's it's very similar to my own story. I, I haven't often used the word humanism, but I've I've said that I learned my social justice conscience from Jesus, basically from the church and, and from the teachings of Jesus. And that's, you know, puzzling to people because, you know, especially to atheists because they, they think of Jesus in a, in a quite a different way. And indeed there is a mixed record about, you know, the Jesus of the Bible, of course, but I was very selective like many people, probably like you and in choosing the sort of the picture of Jesus that was um, very much like, the Jean Vanier that you and I met through his writing and through uh, the large communities, um, you know, and uh, as I was doing a little research earlier today about, about Larsh and their founding principles of, they are of course rooted in, in Christianity and in the Catholic church. Um, but they are very um, secular in their outlook. In other words, they accept anyone in their community, whether they believe a particular belief in God or, or any other kind of belief or not. Um, and, and part of that, what I think what comes from the Christian faith is a belief, as you sort of alluded to a moment ago, that people are created in the image of God that, and that more importantly, that we have inherent dignity as a result, that human beings have this special, uh, dignity, uh, 
that according to Christianity is granted to us by our creation in God's image. How does that translate for you into humanism? Um, do you still find a way of, of uh, anchoring that sort of dignity of humanity in the work that you do and in your personal life? I do. Um, that's an interesting question. And I, you know, to be honest, if I was sitting here with an apologist who wanted to corner me and say, you know, how do you ground that assumption without, right. you know, these ideas about God um, or, or Jesus, I, I'm sure I couldn't do it to a satisfying degree. What I, what I can say is that during my time in Catholicism, I found it so refreshing and so life-giving to encounter these these assumptions about people having value and life having value in and of itself um, without it being about, you know, essentially, for lack of a better term, uh, coercing people into uh, agreeing with our religious views. Mm. Um, you know, Catholics have a, a long record of providing services to, you know, anyone. They don't require them to, to have the same beliefs. And so I just, I think I internalized that so deeply that even though I've, I've let go of aspects of the theology, um, that, that core just resonated so deeply. And, you know, I've, I've caught myself using the word service um, in just in describing what the belief is there, but um, you know, Vanier and others have said, you know, not only that these folks in society's margins have value, but they are our teachers. Right. And I, I view, um, you know, my work that way in, in mental health the same way. I mean, it's definitely a, a collaborative, bidirectional process. It's not um, me imparting wisdom or wellness upon people. It's it's engaging people and meeting them where they're at, working with what they have and, and how they're able to engage, when they're able to engage, and seeing if together we can journey to a place that is um, healthier f- for them and, and more in the direction of where they want to go. So to me, I just I don't see a, a, a conflict between... Um, a secular view and these ideas that, that I would call humanism. I I'm open to the possibility that I'm using the term in a, in a non-traditional way. I'm not sure. I'm not real up on the philosophy of it. Um, but just, yeah, this idea of, of people having an inherent value that interaction with them is meaningful, that, that people have uh, inherent needs and longings, that that are worthwhile in and of themselves and that we are a gift to one another when we can interact and participate in meaningful ways with one another. Yeah, I, f- I find that so compelling. And, and I think I'm beginning even, I guess, like more and more realizing from a humanist, like a secular humanist perspective, that it's really the fragility and the temporality of our lives that that in many ways um, facilitates that sense of dignity and worth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the fragility of my relationships, meaning any one of us could die at any, any moment and that would be it, that adds so much more value to the moments that we do get to spend together. I, you know, the previous episode, I, I spoke to Dave Warnock about his 
terminal diagnosis and and how you know crucial every moment is for him and how he's just milking every drop of life out of out of those moments and i think it's for a humanist for a secular humanist it's it's so uh real that that life is fragile and life is um temporal and and i think when you're when i read stories about um larsh and i learned about larsh the in the beginning from um henry nowen and his experience at the daybreak community in toronto and you know he talks so profoundly as does vanier about how how much they've learned about their own selves and humanity from people with um developmental and intellectual disabilities some also with physical disabilities that that you that that reciprocity made it so different than everything i had experienced up till that point about christians who wanted to help other people and of of course there's nothing wrong with wanting to help someone but sometimes helping can be very um patriarchal and kind of condescending um and and what vanier was talking about was so different that that each of these individuals in the community that had disabilities were in fellowship and in community and in relationship with people that didn't have developmental disabilities and that the learning and that the fellowship and the sharing of humanity went both ways. It made me, I did a little reading today of some of his writings and, and uh, came across this beautiful statement. Vanier says, we don't know what to do with our own weakness except hide it or pretend it doesn't exist. So how can we welcome fully the weakness of another if we haven't welcomed our own weakness? And I, I think this idea of vulnerability and accepting our own weakness is something that he was constantly saying we learn from people who who can teach us. And um, that, that seems to be one of the great treasures of, of the work that he did. Absolutely. I, I was actually just hoping to speak to that for a moment. And I, I think it's the... Um, lack of a social mask, you know, the the authenticity and vulnerability that um, not just people with intellectual disabilities, but other, you know, people essentially on the margins of society Mm. present with, they don't have the luxury of sort of the fakeness or the the social pretensions that, you know, most of the, the people we might interact with with in daily life do. And so there is this refreshing sense of, wow, this, this person is being real with me. They're being authentic. And it, one of the things that struck me today is how, um, you know, for decades, Vanier has been talking about and writing about uh, things like authenticity and vulnerability. And I, I'm sure we can think of um, people newer to the scene who who are making uh, meaningful contributions on those topics more recently mm-hmm. but to think that Vanier was doing that for for as long as he was way back when um, that was just one of several things that that really struck me today that if it's not the gift it's one of the gifts that that presents um, from working with the community that he did yeah, it really underlines for me that community, and we all want this, you know, the secular, um, you know, community or or people that have left their faith, often what we hear, and you hear it, and I hear it, and we've, you and I have probably both felt it as well, that leaving a church ha- leaves that vacuum within us, a sense of, of a loss of community. And, and I've, I've frequently, even in the church, people would say, oh, your your church has such a great sense of community. And it's this word that we throw around and we don't often say specifically what we mean by it. It's a little hard to describe 
what we mean by it. We know it when we feel it and see it, but we don't always have the right words to describe it. But whatever it is, I've had this feeling for a long time that it is bound up in our sense that we belong to each other and that we need each other in some fundamental way. Not in a, you know, and, and of course you're a, you're a therapist, so so tell me, uh, like not in a not in a needy way, like a codependent kind of way, but in a way in which we say, I'm, I'm not um, an island. I'm not ultimately just me. I, I need other people in my life to make me whole, to help me be a, a complete person. And that's so profoundly what he was trying to do and I think succeeded in doing. And I, but I wondered, you know, as we face a mental health crisis in this country and plenty of other countries around the world, I'm sure... And especially as I'm in my work on college and university campuses, we're seeing an uptick in loneliness and isolation and self-harming and even suicide on on college and university campuses. Um, how can we take what we've learned from from Vanier and others over the years and begin to put those things into practice in, in our own lives? I mean, do, do we need to create like shared living situations in order to accomplish that or or are there some things that we can, do you think that we can use? It, it's probably, you know, anything on a spectrum from, you know, creating spaces for people to be authentic and true mm. about what matters most deeply to them, um, to these collective living arrangements. Um, I think, sorry, my mind's going in a couple of different directions yeah. here. I'm, try, I'm trying to pick which one. Uh, I know Vanier has has spoken powerfully about the just the very uh, foundational human desire for belonging, and he he sees that as primary. And when I first heard him talk about that, I I was skeptical, but he's won me over over the years. In that, um, when we feel like we don't belong, nothing else you know matters or can, in a sense, be made up for. But it also uh, needs to include a component of of accepting people where they're where they are, and I think a lot of people uh, leave leave church or leave communities because they don't feel welcome, because they feel like they have to have it all together, or you know, be socially appealing, or um, look or act a certain way to sort of you know fit in, even socioeconomically with. Um, kind of the, the presentation that, that that particular group is about. Hmm. And maybe I'm, maybe, I'm not sure which this is, the chicken or the egg, but I, I don't share your experience uh, for the most part of finding, with the exception of my Catholic experience, uh, finding satisfying community uh, within church. Um, I hmm. always sought deeper, more authentic interactions and found it, really difficult often to to find people who were willing to go there with me mm. uh so much to the point where i have had experiences where hanging out at work with really severely um psychiatrically ill people um did feel more real and more meaningful than mm. going to church because you can go to church and everybody smiles and they look pretty and they have their nice clothes on and they say hi how are you and you may pass the peace um, but I can sit down in a day room in a psych hospital and ask somebody how they're doing. And they say, you know, my back effing hurts. I'm hungry. Mm. Um, I haven't seen my doctor in three days. I don't know when I'm getting out of here. And and I'm scared and I'm upset. Yeah. And 
you know, <laughs> uh, if I have to compare the, the two interactions, um, you know, the, the latter is, is what feels most real and genuine to me. And then I can, you know, sit there and be with that person. Um, I may not be able to fix the problem of getting them out of, well, I definitely can't fix the, the problem of getting <laughs> them out of the hospital right that minute. But the, um, and I don't want to in any way uh, convey that this is about me or getting my needs met, but just noticing the, the pattern over time. There's, there's something about having the ability to hold on to one's pretensions uh, stripped away by life circumstances or um, inherent abilities that I think just gets more at the heart of the human experience than, than what we would necessarily orchestrate for ourselves uh, if, if doing it in a social situation. I'm not sure if that, that makes sense. It but, does. Okay. No, yeah, no, I think it really does. And it's it's hard to... On the one hand, it's very, very simple. And I've often thought that, you know, if if we're looking for a tool or a technology for creating meaningful conversations or, or um, for example, like creating a, a community, you could almost just say, like, share authentically something from your pain um, and and see what happens. You know, like people will mm-hmm. tend to respond. I mean, I, I think, you know, you were referring to people who have sort of stepped into this conversation much more recently. I always think of, of Brene Brown and, uh, you know, who says that we, we always value vulnerability in another person and fear it in our, in our, for ourselves. And, you know, when we see vulnerability in someone else, we think, oh my goodness, what a hero. Like this person is just so real and authentic. And gosh, I wish... I wish I had more of that in my life, right? And then when we have an opportunity to do that, we're like, oh no, I could never, that's terrifying. I could never, that would be shameful. People would not like me anymore if I, I- shared that. And and right, right minutes after you thought like, oh, I like this person even better since they were vulnerable. But when we come to be vulnerable, we think everybody's going to hate me. Absolutely. And, and Brene Brown is primarily who I, who I was thinking of and how much Vanier has... Um, you know, at, at least in part, uh, paved the way for her work. Um, but there's also a, a two-part process to what you speak of in terms of inviting people to be authentic. And that is, um, there's the authentic sharing from, you know, the individual, but then there's also building a space for the group, I think, to tolerate and be with that person in their discomfort or vulnerability without feeling the need to fix it. Mm. And that's huge, huge, especially in church, I think, because, you know, everybody wanted to believe that that Jesus was going to fix everything. And I don't know, victorious Christian living or whatever (laughs) tradition people came from professed. But even without that, you know, I think we're just conditioned socially to uh, smooth over rough edges and, you know, tell people things are going to be okay or offer a, a solution to a problem when really that's probably not what they're really looking for. They're, they're looking for people um, to be present with them in, in the state they're in. And we all know that, right? Like, this is the weird thing about human psychology. We all know that. Like when you've say had a loss in your life and, and you are really deeply sorrowful and, and you sit with a friend and the friend says, I don't know what to say. And your immediate thought is, I don't need you to say anything. 
I just need you to sit here and drink this coffee with me like that. Or, you know what I mean? Like we, we know that. And yet when we're in that situation, it is deeply uncomfortable. And we have to sit with that discomfort and say, it's not my job to solve this. I can't solve it. I'm not in a position of solving this. But what we're doing is we're sharing our humanity together. And with very few words, a deep connection can be can be formed. And uh, it's it's just so interesting the way that we run from it when we should oftentimes be running towards that feeling of discomfort of of sharing our our deepest sort of vulnerability and again i don't want to suggest that you know we should all go to work tomorrow and just like <laughs> dump our sorrows on our coworkers or something like that it's probably calculated to backfire on us but in the right context like you said creating a, a space where that kind of um speech and 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 being can be understood and appreciated I think would be religion or no religion, right? I mean, this is where I wish I had an opportunity to ask Vanier, like how much of what you write about and teach is dependent on your Christianity and how much of it is sort of coincident with your Christianity, but not sort of dependent on it. And I have a feeling he would say like, sure, anybody can do this. This is a human thing. And um, I I guess uh, in in closing, like if anyone is, is interested in learning more about Jean Vanier, even if you're a humanist or even if you're like an anti-theist and you just can't stomach much religion at all, I would really recommend his book, Becoming Human. Um, It's um, a short read and he will of course talk about his faith, but if you can sort of contextualize that and hear him speaking out of his own tradition and out of his own concern, um, I think you can learn a lot, so much from from what he shares. And his other sort of masterpiece is Community and Growth, um, which is probably a little bit more theological, but has so many gems of insight in it. If you if you want to learn some Catholic uh, social theology, <laughs> along with some great sort of training in being human, I couldn't recommend it more. What do you, what do you think, Gretchen? What's your favorite? I agree. And I have not um, read a whole lot of him. I've read more excerpts here and there. But one thing I have found uh, deeply moving is the interview he did with Krista Tippett mm. on the On Being show probably about 10 years ago Yeah, um, that pops up every now and then. And I'd be fairly surprised if they didn't uh, post that this week for folks to listen to. Yeah, Brian was saying he was listening to it earlier today to kind of go back and refresh his thinking about about Vanier and I'll post the link in the show notes to um, the on being interview uh, was speaking of faith back in those days, uh, but also with Krista Tippett. And um, she has such a way with uh, drawing out such beautiful insights from her guests. And mm-hmm. it, it is a fantastic interview. And I'll, I'll make sure to post that for everyone. Yeah. And he speaks a- about uh, his faith, but not in a way that's heavy handed at all. Yeah, and that's just not his way, right? I mean, that's no, I mean, he all. he wouldn't have developed what he's developed and and I mean, even Henry Nowen was at odds with him, struggled with his faith his entire. He was a priest and and still struggled so deeply with his own identity and his own beingness and 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 with the relationship that that had to his faith and and really found a refuge in his last years before he died at the Daybreak community and and writes so beautifully about um the men that he was uh, friends with there and how they transformed his outlook. And I just, yeah, I'm just so I've never jumped on a story and done a quick podcast like this before. So I guess if that's any measure of how 
how impressed I am and how, how I suspect not many people in my current sphere of influence know of Jean Vanier and hoping that maybe we can introduce a few people to him. That sounds wonderful. Well, thanks so much for coming on at short notice. I know we only just arranged this a few hours ago, <laughs> but thanks for doing this. And, um, and we'll again, chat down the road. Sounds good. It was great to talk. Thanks, Ryan. And if you want to learn more about the Life After God podcast, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. It's been a pleasure to spend this time with you, and thank you for tuning in. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. 